One author wrote this on this passage, when talking about this passage. He said, perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, but it's a flustered love. Does that resonate? Do, do you go around moment by moment? Maybe you wouldn't say this. Maybe you wouldn't describe it, but you think like moment by moment you walk around with this sense that God has some sort of at least low-level sense of disappointment directed at you and about you. Again, this may not be something that you would verbalize, but do you sense if you were to think about God and His disposition towards you, would it be more of a frown? I think Paul has an answer for that. Perhaps he knew this sense of moment by moment not being able to relate to the love of the Father to him in moment by moment. Perhaps he knew that in his own life with the Holy Spirit who is guiding and directing and inspiring the words that Paul writes in Romans. He knew that the Roman Christians and that Christians beyond them, including us here today, would need an answer for those kinds of questions and, and that kind of examination of our faith to see when we examine it, what's actually there. And we're going to need some help in those moments. And so Paul writes Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, and he gives us an answer to some of those questions and doubts and concerns. Verses 6 through 11, they, they describe love's proof, love's measure, and love's assurance, so that the justified, those who have faith in Jesus, might rejoice in God and live out the benefits of their justification in the now, in the moment by moment of their lives. So, so Paul wrote in verse 5 that hope is not going to be put to shame. And in verse 5, he, he grounds that hope that's not going to be put to shame because of the love that's poured into hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This Holy Spirit pouring love into our hearts isn't to be understood as only some sort of personal, mystical experience that can be you know, as variously subjective as people are, there is an objective ground to this love because this love is not just something that is personally applied and subjective. There's a historical, confirmed, objective proof of this love. And that's what Paul writes of in verse 6. He says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He mentions Christ died for us two times here in this passage. There's this supreme proof and demonstration of the love of God, and it's found in the death of Christ. God's love is proved, is demonstrated in the death of Jesus. And this, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, is of first importance. The very fact of Christ's death, a historical fact, Christ died. It's something that Paul keeps talking about. He says to the Corinthians, it's of first importance. Not everything is of first importance, but this is of first importance that he delivered to them that Christ died. That historical, objective truth 
is something that he keeps talking about. And one of the reasons that Paul keeps talking about it and keeps coming back to this reality that Christ died, because again, if you're, if you're trying to spread uh, something, spread a gospel, maybe that gospel needs to have a positive message and stop being about death and blood. But Paul keeps going around and saying Christ died. And he talks about his blood and it being poured out. And he does that. And one of the reasons he does that is what he says here in verse 6 through 8, that it proves and demonstrates God's love. We need to be careful with how we read that. Christ's death proves God's love. It demonstrates God's love. It doesn't cause God's love. Christ's death does not cause God's love. It demonstrates God's love. It proves God's love. Love is already present in God, and it is demonstrated in the death of Christ. It's not like HGTV. If you've watched the show, they have a show, Love It or List It. And in the show, Love It or List It, they bring in a real estate agent. They bring in a, uh, I don't know, redecorator maybe. Someone to transform the house they live in. So the real estate agent is taking this family and trying to get them to move. And so they'll show them houses that are comparable and something that they can afford. And will provide for them what their current house won't. And the, the decorator comes in and is trying to like, all right, what do you need in this house and how can I do that within your budget? And then at the end, they have to decide, all right, so we've done this redecorating, we've remodeled some, and we have these listings out here that you saw. And now you compare them like, all right, are you going to love it or, or are you going to list it? You know, like the, the decorator comes in, makes improvements and tries to get them to stay. And th- there is no heavenly love it or list it where Jesus' death is coming in to humanity, kind of redecorating, trying to refix everything and say like, oh, right now, Father, will you love this now? Are you okay with them now? That's not what Jesus' death does. It doesn't help the Father love sinners and not move on to some other group of people. Now, one author says it well, that the only ground of God's love is His love. That the ground of God's love is only and holy in himself. And this is made clear in what Paul says here about Christ's death. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The we that Paul jumps into again here is the same we of verse 1. The we who have been justified by faith. The we who have peace with God. And he joins that we and says of them that we were weak. Now, not always is that term weak a negative term for Paul. He boasts in his weakness in other places. But it does speak to his moral inability, his incapacity to do enough good before God. And we know that clearly in the context that the weak, here's what they need. They need Christ's death. But they're not just weak. They're, They're also ungodly sinners at enmity with God. That's kind of the sum of this passage, what it's saying. And that's quite the rap sheet for each individual that Paul joins himself into. Weak, ungodly, sinners at enmity with God. So the worthiness of the we here is pretty low. The the ungodly, we saw that term before, it was found in chapter 1 verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness. And Paul says we were the ungodly. And yet, at the right time, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. The right time, the while we were still sinners time, the while still weak time, the while still ungodly time. And I don't think that specific time is about a specific date. I think it's about God's 
purposes culminating in Jesus. It's all been working up to this point. Salvation history, all of history has been working and moving into this point. At the right time, Christ dies. It's the peak of salvation history. The, the Galatians 4.4 talks about it as the fullness of time. Everything has been leading up to the person and work of Jesus. And it's at that time that Christ died for the ungodly, where God proves his love. He demonstrates his love in dying for sinners. And Christian, there must not be any distance between this text and you. Because the we of this text is a pronoun that we can fit into, that we belong in. It's the same we who are justified in verse 1 by faith and have peace with God. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is a we that you get to jump into. This means that Paul's descriptions here fit us. Weak, ungodly, sinners. And maybe you feel it, but what I think you should do is you should receive that rightly. That is us. These are not glowing descriptions of who we are, but they are not disqualifying descriptions either. In fact, we could say that these are the very qualifications needed for salvation. These are the identities that Jesus died for. He dies for the weak. He dies for the ungodly. He dies for those who are sinners. Not once you're strong, then Jesus dies. Not once you've figured out this ungodliness and get that corrected, then Jesus dies. No, God saves sinners. He rescues the weak. He redeems the ungodly. There are no other that God saves. That's the list. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal the, the sick. He died for who? In verse 6, the ungodly. That's it. He doesn't meet anyone halfway. Get stronger. Get holier. He dies for the weak and the ungodly. He doesn't wait for any to initiate in their weakness and ungodliness and sinfulness. He dies for them while, what a great word that Paul includes there, while they're weak, while they're ungodly, while they're still sinners. And what we must not get around then is that this death, while those things are true of us, is the demonstration of the proof of God's love. Christ's death, while we're still sinners and weak and ungodly, proves God's love. God loved us in our weakness. He loved us while we were ungodly. He died for us while we were sinners. You know, at times weakness and failure can seem like a disqualifier for the love of God. Like somehow this cuts me off. It shows that I'm not worthy of love. At times our sin and our ungodliness can seem like it's got to cut off the flow of God's love for us. Like there's no way God could love a sinner like me or someone weak like me or someone ungodly like me. But the ground of God's love, church, is not the worthiness of the objects of his love, right? It's not their lovability. The ground of God's love is his love. And his love must be great because he demonstrated, demonstrated it while we were still in our weakness and sin and ungodliness. In our unbelief of thinking that we're disqualified maybe or unworthy or cut off from God's love, here's what God does for us. He puts the cross before us. Perhaps you're like me and sometimes the, the, what you know to be theologically true doesn't actually line up with what's 
your experience. The experiential and the theological may not always go together. What you know, uh, that we know God's love us and receiving God's love for us can be different sometimes. It's true, and I would say that it's true that God loves sinners, but my sense of it and my weakness sometimes can be waning, and, and my sense of it, my feeling of it and my failure can be almost non-existent. It's a, a difference between, again, what we talked about is on paper versus what is actually happening in moment-by-moment moment life. And what are we to do in those places? And I love what one author does to help us. He says, and when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, the best way is to warm ourselves at his fire, the fire, this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. You might feel unworthy and weak and like a failure, but if you're in Christ Jesus, you have a fire to warm your soul that can't be warmed in any other location. You're not going to be able to warm your soul by convincing yourself that you're not as ungodly as you are or by convincing yourself that you're stronger than you are. Those are not fires that warm the soul in the right way, but the cross put before us does. This is where you might feel unworthy and you go there and you get warmed in the right way. And so what I would say is have some logs ready, right? Get some stuff stored up that you might go to that fire a little bit more quickly each time when you feel this sense of what's on paper versus what's actually being lived out moment by moment with what I know to be true and what I'm actually experiencing. Get some logs ready so that you can go there. So think of the cross. I, I think quickly of, all right, when Jesus is on the cross, out of all the things he could say, one of the things he says is, Father, forgive them. And that is just a bursting out of the heart of our Christ. He even looks to one of the, the thieves that's with him that somehow turns to him and says, we deserve this, but you don't. Remember me when you come to your kingdom, which is an amazing confession. And what does Jesus say on that day? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. That thief, uh, he didn't know. Like uh, uh, The doctrine of justification never crossed his mind. He's just looking at Jesus and knows that one has to be the king. And so he says, remember me. And he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Or Jesus taking his final breaths. What does he say? It's finished. Finished. It's done. All, all that needed to be done has been done. Here, I've, I've accomplished all the Father gave me to do. Get some verses like Galatians 2.20 where Paul says that, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Or, or Ephesians 5.2 where, where Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Go to 1 Peter 3.18 where the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Find some places like that and go and warm your soul there. The cross ought to be where all those arguments just get slammed down, right? You, you place them there and they just melt away before what we see as proof and demonstration of the love of God before us in the cross. They leave us with only one conclusion. God must love me because Jesus died for me. And when you get that and when you receive it, what's happening is that that's the Holy Spirit pouring the love of God from chapter 5, verse 5, into your heart, and as we view God's love for us on the cross, it can capture us enough to then all of a sudden start forgetting about all those things that we thought before. I'm too weak. I'm ungodly. I don't even remember those anymore because I'm so captured by the love that's so proven and demonstrated to me on the cross. It frees us from our own thoughts of unworthiness, of trying to be lovable. It frees us from all that. We could even say that Satan, and he will, could fire darts at us in those moments and say, you're unworthy. We say, yes, I'm unworthy, but God loves because he loves. 
You're ungodly. Yes, but I have a great Savior who died for the ungodly. You're a sinner. Yes, Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't wait for me to make the first move or for me to figure things out, get stronger, get more godly. He came and died while I was weak, while I was a sinner, while I was still ungodly. So what happens is, is that in this really wonderful way, the descriptions of weak and ungodly and sinner actually serve to show the greatness of God's love even more. Even further reason to embrace those as reality for you, not only because they're true, but because they help show even further the demonstration of God's love in your life as someone who is weak and ungodly and a sinner. So are you convinced of God's love for you? Go to the cross and be convinced for the first time or be convinced again. Don't leave it until you're convinced. Because God intends at the cross to put his love for you beyond question. So if it's in question, go again and stay as long as it's needed until it's no longer a question. This is a God who proved love for sinners. But in this passage, there's more than unworthiness on our side. We see love's proof in the cross, but we also get to see the measure of love. Look in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Like he's like, there's a small chance that one would die for someone good and righteous. It happens. But he says there's even a smaller chance that one would die for someone who's not good. But here's what he says he brings in in verse 8. But God, he's the one who shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross proves and puts in clear view his love while sinners, while weak, while ungodly. But look at the measure of this love in its giving. Yeah, we see the, some of it in our unworthiness, but look on the other side, the measure of it is giving. God shows his love for us in that Christ died. In verse 10, he's going to call him the son. This is the one who died. And when we say that Christ died, this is the son that died, we need to ask what more could be given by God. Could anything more be given? The son of God came and died. There's... Uh, a few generals that you've likely heard of from World War II. You've probably heard of General Patton, General MacArthur. Perhaps you haven't heard of Omar Bradley. He was a general during World War II. And one of the things that he did is that he actually has this kind of famous story where he goes to his men in Luxembourg and he jumps into the foxhole with one of them and starts chatting it up. And so they're talking. He just jumps into a foxhole with a soldier and he starts talking to him. And before he leaves, he asks this soldier, hey, what do you guys need? What do you guys need? And the guy says, well, we need medical supplies and food. So sure enough, Bradley goes back to command center, whatever generals do. He's doing general stuff. And a truck comes with supplies. And on the side of those supplies, those boxes of supplies, was written this, this soldier's name. Like, how awesome is that? Like, here's a general just jumps into a foxhole, asks him what he needs, and then sends supplies, puts his name on it. The, the command center to the foxhole, that's a great distance, but, but that is nothing compared to the distance between heaven and earth. He said goodbye to the command center to get in the middle of a war in the foxhole and get supplies in the right place. And Christ himself said goodbye to the angels and the glory that he had in heaven with his Father and with the Spirit and comes down into this foxhole to see what we need and to take our place. He bids heaven goodbye in order to die for sinners. This is no general. General to private is, uh, maybe that's a leap in the military, but this is eternal God to humanity. It's a bigger leap. 
It's the eternal Son of God, beloved of the Father, adored by the angels, the Lord of all creation. He's the one that comes down to earth. And who did he come to? Enemies. With the guns pointed at him. Not pointed up in the air. Pointed at him. That's who he jumps into the foxhole with. He goes behind enemy lines and he dies for those enemies. Church, what measure of love is that? If a measure of love is found in its giving and God gave Christ, what measure of love is that? I love this quote. I'll probably use it a million times, so if you stay around long, you're going to hear it again. But one author says, to give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. He can make more worlds, but he has no more Christ to give. He can make more worlds. He has no more Christ to give. And verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why Paul can praise. He prays in Ephesians chapter 3. This is why Paul can say, I want you guys to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He can speak of and pray for them to know the breadth and length and height and depth because it has that kind of texture and dimension. It's like you're going this way and that way, and it's all over the place. And what does he also say? It surpasses knowledge. He prays for that. And you know why he prays for that? Because if you get a hold of that, it changes everything. If you get a, a sense of the measure of God's love for you, it changes everything about you. Paul knew some of this love, right? He was on this Damascus road working against the people of God, trying to destroy them and take them out. And who appears to him but that Christ who was given, who later he would say is the one who he gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in that moment when Christ appears to him, he doesn't have a full sense of the greatness of that love, of the measure of that love. But later, he's going to say in Colossians, he's going to say, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him and through him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things are created through him and for him. In him is the fullness of God, and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, he's going to figure out more and more as he goes along, as he grows the greatness of this Christ that has met him on this road. This is the one he's going to say in chapter 4, as he said already in chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up for my trespasses, raised for my justification, and he wants saints to know not only the greatness then of Jesus, but the greatness of this gift that he came and died for them. He wants them to know something of the measure of that kind of love of one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, coming and dying for them. That's not just seen in the unworthiness of the recipients, it's also seen in the worthiness of the one who is given, and there is no greater one. And so the measure of God's love that he has shown, that he has proved, that he has demonstrated, is shown in the person of Jesus. The image of the invisible God. And so what does this show us? Like we have the proof of God's love and, and we have the measure of God's love. And so we could say of God's love that it's, it's an ocean and it doesn't have shores and it doesn't have a bottom. But Paul's burden in this passage isn't only to show love's proof and measure. He wants that poured into us now. Right? How easy it is to slipping into, like, all right, we've seen the proof of it, we see some of the measure of it, and we hopefully we're growing in our awareness of that, but it's so easy to slip into thinking that God loved us, God proved something to us, but now he's a little bit disappointed with us. But now that love has waned a bit. 
No fault on his part. We're weak and ungodly. But Paul wants not only loves proof poured out into our hearts, loves measure poured out into our hearts, but loves ongoing achievement, loves ongoing assurance poured into us as well. Look at verse 9. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. There's a world in that word since, right? Since verses 6 through 8. Since this one came and died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since that, since verse 9, we're justified by his blood. We have righteousness and right standing before God through the propitiation of Jesus, through his work of, of giving himself for us, turning aside the wrath of the Father, and giving us his own righteousness. Since those things, since he was the one who in chapter 4, verse 25, was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification, since those things, how much more, verse 9, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Here we've looked to saved in a, in a future tense. So, so what he's not talking about here, he's not saying how much more will we be saved in sort of conversion sense. This is not conversion saved here. It's future. It looks to the, to the end. It looks to us entering into the presence of God. It looks to us entering into heaven. The, the now of justification, he is saying, is going to lead to the future salvation. And that future salvation is from God, and it's a salvation from God. We're saved from something. That salvation comes from God, and it saves us from God. And what is so clear that we are saved from in this passage? We are to be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, because of the your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we need to be saved from that wrath because of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness that exists within us. And we need to be saved from it. And the justified, those who have faith in Jesus, are those who receive righteousness from Christ, who receive right standing now. The not guilty verdict is declared over us now, but it will be a verdict that we hear then, so that we don't have judgment then, so that we don't have wrath then. We can enter into this place where we are escaping the judgment of God that we deserve, because that has already been poured out on Christ before. That's future salvation is like our justification now. It is, what does he say? By him. By him. Salvation is from Jesus in conversion, and we will be saved by him on the last day. So salvation from first to last is by him. It's through Jesus. He is the one who justifies, and he is the one who saves all the way to the end. In verse 10, he continues, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I love that. That term reconciled is a, a very unique term, right? Like it speaks of enmity between two parties that have then been brought together. Think of the enmity that exists between God and man. It goes both ways, I think. In chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed, so he's at enmity, from heaven against all who? The, the ungodly, 
ungodliness and unrighteousness, of which we can identify with in chapter 5, verse 6, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's what they do. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They're at enmity with God too. They've rejected God too. They've suppressed the truth. They've hijacked the truth and used it to serve their own purposes and ends. And so the enmity goes both directions, but it's God's wrath that needs to be propitiated and turned aside. God is the offended party here. He is the one who needs to be reconciled. And reconciled is a rich, rich word. Speaks of animosity and alienation and enmity being done away with. Gone. It's Joseph and his brothers. They threw him in a pit and then he embraces them in a hug. That's reconciliation. It's the prodigal. Runs away from his father, comes back and is wrapped up and embraced by his father. It's Saul, after he goes to Damascus. Ananias coming to him and saying speaking words of peace over him from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's reconciliation. The enmity between God and man is dissolved. And how is it dissolved? By the death of the Son. And we, again, Paul puts himself in here, we were enemies and we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. And now much more that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's that repeated way that Paul jumps into this and makes himself a part of it. Paul knew that enmity, didn't he? He felt it when he had a bright light appear to him on the road to Damascus. He, it, that enmity between him and God knocked him to the ground. And the Lord said to him, why are you persecuting me? That's enmity. There's animosity there. There's alienation there. But the we are now the we that are justified. And there's this parallel of verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, we're justified by His blood. In verse 10, we're reconciled to God. Those are speaking of the same thing. We're justified by His blood and reconciled to our God. The parallel statements help describe what's going on and leave us without doubt. How are we reconciled to God? The same way we are justified by His blood. How is that blood applied to us? How are we made right? We've said it a million times. We need to say it again. We're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. It, I want us to know here that when we think about being reconciled to God by the death of His Son, that we know who we're talking about. It's not that everything is reconciled to God by the death of the Son as if there is no sense of appropriation of the Son's blood. Right? It's not, we don't believe in universalism. Where now Christ has come, he's shown his love. What a great example that was. He died and everything is reconciled and everything's good. That's not true. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Reconciliation with the holy God who has wrath upon all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's only reconciliation found by faith alone in Christ alone. But what is Paul's driving point in verses 9 and 10? He says, verse 9, since... We've been justified by blood. How much more will we be saved from the wrath of God? Or verse 10, if while, how much more will we be saved by his life? He's getting at something that we need to hear. That if God justified you while you were a sinner and an enemy of his, how much more Will God save you now that you are, verse 9, justified by his blood? Verse 10, reconciled. You're now 
a friend of his. Like he no longer is knocking you down with his enmity. He is embracing you as a father. How much more if while that has happened, while you've been reconciled and justified, won't he accomplish this final and full salvation? In other words, Paul is saying, God is not going to accomplish the greater, the more difficult, dying for you while you're a sinner and don't want anything to do with him and reject him, and then not accomplish the easier, which is to bring you all the way home to final and full salvation. He won't fail at the lesser when he's accomplished the greater. God did the hardest part in executing his son, delivering him up as a propitiation for sins while he's saving sinners. And so verse 9 saved by him, and verse 10 adds saved by his life, reminds us that he's going to accomplish the more difficult, or he's accomplished the more difficult, and he's going to not fail at the lesser. What does it mean to say that he saved by him and then saved by his life? I think Paul has maybe verse 25 of chapter 4 in view, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That resurrection life that Paul talks about there, he was raised for our justification, is probably what Paul has in view. He probably has something in mind, like what he says later in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, we have peace with God. We, we stand in grace. We've been reconciled to God. We've been justified by his blood. Those sound like things to say that God is for us. And if God is for us, then he says, well, then who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? He died while we were still sinners. And, and then again, the, how will he not you know, give us all things on top of that? It, he did the greater and dying for us while sinners. Like, is he going to withhold uh, some sort of lesser thing from us? No. Like, he goes on to say, who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You're justified by his blood. Who is to condemn then? Like you stand in grace, chapter 5. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. A historical fact that he says proves, demonstrates the love of God for you. More than that, he was also raised. He was delivered up for trespasses, raised for justification. He's at the right hand of God. There's his resurrection life. He's interceding for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall anything? And the answer is no way. No way. Death and resurrection in the work of Christ are this unbroken unity. And so too are the benefits of his death and resurrection. If you're in on the benefits of Christ's death, then guess what? You're also in on the benefits of Jesus' resurrection too. If in Jesus' death, sins are paid for, and in the resurrection, the Father receives the payment and says, paid in full, then if you're in Christ and your sins have been paid for in his death, then there is no payment that remains for you. God the Father will not exact payment on His Son on your behalf back here and then exact and expect some sort of payment for you in the future. As if Christ's blood wasn't enough to pay for all of it the first time. There is no other payment left. There is no vain blood that is spilt by the Son of God. Jesus then won't see sins paid for in his death and then not apply the full benefits to his people on that day. If they're reconciled to God, how much more will they be saved in the end? And yet, often don't we think and live and act as if that's not true. We could say, Jesus died for my sins. He 
paid for my sins. But now I've got to take over and get to the end. Or Jesus died for my sins. He paid for my sins. But I still keep messing up and he might be done with me. Or perhaps his love has stopped or slowed and I need to earn it back. And we can start then to rely on our sanctification, God's ongoing grace, ongoing process of making us holy. We can rely on that, our sanctification, for our justification. We can rely on God's ongoing process of making us like His Son to ground our being made right in His sight. As if final salvation depends upon our performance before God, our obedience before God, or perhaps, again, the strength, purity, and intensity of our faith before God. But what does Paul tell us so clearly in Romans 5? As he's told us in Romans 3 and Romans 4, that Jesus saves that we're reconciled to God by Jesus alone, that we're justified by Jesus, and then he adds on here in Romans 5, and we will be saved if we're justified, then we will be saved by Jesus, that it's his work from first to last. We need to hear and apply verses 9 and 10. There's a, a clear logic that Paul is giving there with the since, much more, if, much more. We need to hear that logic, but we also have to apply it. Since we're justified by his blood, won't we be saved? Much more we'll be saved by him in the end. If while we were sinners, Christ reconciled us to him by the death of his son, how much more will we be saved by his life? He's saying love has met us in our weaknesses. It has met us in our ungodliness. And it's that love that's going to bring us all the way home to God. Jesus died to save sinners and he's going to see it all the way through. One author says that conversion isn't a fresh start. Conversion, authentic regeneration. Those who have been justified by blood, who have put their faith in Jesus, they're justified by their faith. That's those who have been converted, who have authentic regeneration. Conversion and authentic regeneration is the, it's not even a word, invincibilizing of our future. Invincibilizing, I don't even know, it's not a word. It makes our future invincible in a sense. And that's what Paul lays out in verse 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 do not drive home God's past work of love. That's a little bit verses 6 through 8. He proved it. Look at the measure of it. See it. Remember it. Verses 9 and 10 are giving present help from that love. Paul aims in verses 9 and 10 at security, at assurance, at Christians knowing their justification presently. Not only is it presently declared, it's eternally secure in Christ Jesus. God's love that met us in our weakness, that met us in our ungodliness, is the same love that's going to bring us all the way home to God. And so Christian, verse 11, more than that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. One author just says that as Jesus Christ has done all for us, therefore there is nothing for us to do but to joy and rejoice. You now have reconciliation before God. You have been reconciled. You have been justified by His blood. You will be saved. You now have received reconciliation, verse 11, 
You're not going to then earn it later along the line somewhere. And so now we rejoice. And again, the object of our rejoicing matters. He says in verse 11, we rejoice in God. So that rejoicing then, because God is unchanging, is something that can happen no matter what. Do you feel like rejoicing? Do you feel God's love? Do you sense it? Are you feeling happy in God's love? Are you, you know, just uh, overflowing with uh, bubbliness of God's love for you today? Uh, that doesn't really matter in one sense. Because you're not rejoicing in some sort of feeling that you have. You're rejoicing in God who has proved his love for you, demonstrated his love for you, shown you the, some of the measure of that love, whatever you can grasp of it, and so you can rejoice in God no matter what you feel like in the day. In your moment by moment, you may not feel or sense or, or have any idea of like, I don't know where God's love is, but he says rejoice in God because it's already been proved. It's, you see the measure of it, and it's going to be there for you in the end. So rejoice in the Lord. It's not a moment by moment, what do I need to feel like you rejoice, and perhaps your feelings are going to follow. And even if they don't, we're rejoicing in the Lord, and so we're okay either way. Do you do that well? Man, I struggle here. I struggle, I think, because I know some of my own weaknesses and failure and think, how can I rejoice in that? Maybe you think that in your sin, that your future with God is unsure and that God's main disposition for, towards you is, is, is a frown. And you think, how can I rejoice in that? But didn't Paul thoroughly deal with those arguments he dealt with those, right? In these verses, he dealt with them. Like, he died for you while you were weak. That's not a put-off to God. Now, he, he died for you while you were ungodly. You were nothing. He wasn't scared of that. He still died for you. Right? you you're reconciled to God, justified by his blood. And if you're justified by his blood, much more he's going to see you through to the end. So what's your argument again? It all needs to drop. And if you have no argument and you're reconciled to God, you're justified by His blood, then what is there left to do? But rejoice. Since our rejoicing is in God, through Jesus, who is now reconciled to us, the Father, since He is the one who died for us while we are sinners, for He is the one who has justified us by His blood, since those things are true, much more we will be saved than we dare not hold back our rejoicing. How about we start now? How about we start together? Let's pray.